Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Last weekend, um, we were teaching on Psalm 120, and I mentioned that no one has ever seen a coffee mug with Psalm 58.6 on it until this weekend. Somebody actually made me a coffee mug, Psalm 58.6, and it says on the back, Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. And so I guess um, tomorrow my morning cup of coffee will be with a side of uh, humor as well. So uh, thank you, thank you. If you have your Bible, will you open with me to Psalm 121? We've just sung it. And now we're going to get the chance to study it together. As I've been reflecting on this collection of psalms that we call the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134, I just love this collection of psalms because I really view life as as a journey. And, And these psalms remind us that we are pilgrims on a journey, that this world is not our home and that we're we're going somewhere. And I think that that love for journey and viewing life that way was born in me as a backpacking guide for Young Life. I served as a backpacking guide for four years with Young Life. And I started to see that every trip followed a very similar story arc. That there were twists and turns involved. That there was fatigue and celebration. That strangers became a community over the course of seven days and 40 to 50 miles together. And then at the end of it, we had to say goodbye. And in so many ways, the trail is just a microcosm of what life is like. And there were times on the trail where we needed help. I can remember one specific night where the guides always eat last. And so if you have a trip with a bunch of high school boy football players, as a guide, it meant you weren't going to eat a whole lot because they were going to consume a lot of food. And I can remember lying in my sleeping bag one night and I had my, um, uh, I dipped into my restores and I had beef jerky and I was eating some beef jerky because I was just starving after not getting enough to eat. And I put the rest of the beef jerky down in the bottom of my sleeping bag and was getting ready to go to bed. We'd hung all the rest of our food in bear bags like you were supposed to do up in trees. And as I stuffed that beef jerky down by my feet, I heard this blood-curdling scream come from uh, an adjacent meadow that we were camping right near. Now, this is camping in the wilderness. There wasn't anybody around for miles and miles, but there was clearly an animal dying in this field. And I said to the guys in my tent, fellas, I need your help because I've got a bunch of beef jerky on my feet And we need to eat it before we get eaten. And so I started to pass it out and we had ourselves a little snack out there. And my rations were gone, but our lives were preserved. (laughs) The wilderness has a way of making us feel, no, 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 reminding us that we're small. That we're small. Help. Help. 
That must have been a, a common refrain for those pilgrims traveling from their homeland to Jerusalem. Remember, that's the way that these psalms were used. They were journey songs. They were a soundtrack for a, a spiritual pilgrimage where the nation of Israel would gather three times a year in Jerusalem to remember who their God was. And certainly along the way, they faced trouble. Bandits, thieves, robbers, wild animals, undoubtedly. They did counter the need for food and for shelter and for water. And I'm guessing that for the parents, if you're a parent of young ones in the room today, or if you've had kids you remember going on a road trip, you pull out of the driveway, and almost immediately there's a call from the back seat, I'm hungry. And somehow my wife is always ready for this, and our car turns into a full-service deli almost immediately, right? But they're yelling, help! Help! I'm hungry. And I wonder, I wonder, I wonder if those same pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem heard a similar cry, had similar fears, maybe at times even pushed that beef jerky down to the bottom of their sleeping bag. Listen to Psalm 121. You can follow along with me. The psalmist wrote this, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This, this song, psalm, might be summarized in this word, help, help. But that call for help isn't reserved for backcountry journeyers or religious pilgrims. It's a, it's a human cry, isn't it? I mean, we all get to the place in life where we, we need help, where we call out for help. And it's not just songs that we find in the scriptures that remind us that we're people who need help. We have songs like this in, in our culture, in our day, and our time as well, don't we? Don't we? Maybe you remember this song. It's a few years old now, but my guess is... You remember hearing it. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody. Help! Yeah, that's a, that's a human cry. Author Anne Lameau said that there are essentially three prayers that we pray. Help, thanks, and wow. <laughs> and it does seem like most prayers and fall within those broad categories in some way, some shape, some form. It's a common cry, help, because we are mere mortals. We are limited in our capacity, aren't we? We have needs that we cannot meet and cannot satisfy on our own, and we cry out for help when the resources we possess are insufficient to accomplish the needs 
we face. Help. There's a distance between my reality and my desire. Help. The distance between the the person that I am and the man I long to be. Help. The distance between the, the time that we have and the things that we feel like we need to accomplish. Anybody with me? Help. The distance between the anxiety that we feel and the peace that we long for. Help. The distance between infertility that we're struggling with and the family that we envision. Help. The distance between the money in our bank account and the bills that we have to pay. Help. The distance between the marriage that we have and the marriage that we long for. Help. Help. And I think one of the common pitfalls on the journey of life and of the spiritual journey uniquely is either that we're unwilling to ask for help or that we end up looking for it in all the wrong places. And listen to the way this psalm invites us to call out and to cry out for help. Here's what he wrote. He said, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where, from where does my help come? And it's interesting because there's a number of ways that people have interpreted this first verse. He he could be saying, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? As if to say, well, the hills are my help. When I'm in trouble, I can run to the hills. In fact, David in Psalm 11 verse 1 said that he had the urge to flee like a bird to the mountains. The hills were a place where people could help themselves. Remember that quote by Benjamin Franklin, God helps those who, what? Help themselves. Yeah, just so we're clear, that's not in the Bible. Okay? That's Benjamin Franklin. Okay? But, but the other picture that people would have as they were traversing to Jerusalem, ascending to Jerusalem, they would pass by all of these hills. And if you've been doing the Bible in a year reading plan with us, uh, you've noticed that the high places, quote unquote, were places of idolatry. The hills were places where you might have been able to look and even see in Asherah pole, a a place where people were worshiping other gods. And I think the psalmist in some way is saying, where where are you going to look for your help? And our world hasn't changed all that much over the last few thousand years. They wanted to look inside to find help in their own self. They wanted to look around and turn to the things around them. But we have similar tendencies, don't we? We turn to our own ingenuity. I can work my way out of this. I don't need to ask for directions. I know exactly where we are. And we're both going to find out within the next few hours, right? Or maybe, maybe it's in quitting a job and just going traveling or self-medicating to try to dull the pain or constantly swiping or clicking or checking the scores or turning to our own Asherah poles of idolatrous pursuits. Yeah, yeah, we have our ways of finding help, don't we? They aren't all that different than they were a few thousand years ago. But listen to what the psalmist wrote. He said, my help, My help comes from the Lord who, would you just read this line with me, church? Who made heaven and earth. 
When we call out for help, when we call out for help, we are more powerfully bound to God through our needs and our weaknesses and our unfulfilled hopes and our dreams and our anxieties and our problems than we ever could have been through our joys and our successes and our strengths. It's a declaration of dependency. It's a countercultural affirmation. It's not popular to say, I need help. <laughs> but notice the one on whom we are calling. Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26, that this same God that we call to for help is the God who calls out every star by name each night. Think about that. For a moment, we call on the God who calls out the stars. Yeah, we can call for help to the one who called creation into existence. <laughs> the one who holds it all together by the very power of his word. He is the one on whom we call. As we've sung in this great hymn, O God, our help in ages past, before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame, from everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. This is the God on whom we call. And there are a few reasons the psalmist gives us that we can have confidence in calling out to this God. He's going to talk about God's character and his nature and the, the way that he interacts with his creation. And we've already actually read the first one. We can have confidence in calling out to God because God has creative power. He has creative power. I mean, think of all that's going on in the universe right now. Now, we may know like a fraction of 1% of it. And the fraction that we do know seems like, oh my goodness, it's, it's so fragile and it's so tenuous. And if it were off by just a, a few degrees one way or another, the whole thing would spin out of existence. And here's the thing, friends. God is not in heaven going, I hope this whole thing stays together. <laughs> no, no, he is holding it all together, the scriptures say. By the very breath of his word, he's sustaining it all. And so here's my question for you. If God is able to sustain all of creation, is there anything in your life that is too big for him? That's the psalmist's question. It would be like asking an astrophysicist to help with second grade math. Actually, that's a bad example. <laughs> so now with Common Core, he'd probably have to YouTube it just like me. <laughs> like, what is going on here? What is... That's beside the point, okay? Yeah, the psalm teaches us not to look to the mountains, but to look to the God who made the mountains. He possesses creative power. And here's the thing, friends, don't miss this. He possesses creative power that he promises to infuse into your life. Here's the second reason the psalm went on. And he says, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. 
Now notice that there's this transition in tense. The, the first portion was in first person. The psalmist is saying, I, I, I. And now he starts saying, you. He, he will keep your foot from being moved. He will keep you. And there's a lot of debate about why. Some people think, well, the psalmist is now sort of talking to himself. Which isn't necessarily a bad thing to do, as long as you're telling yourself truth. Right? We all talk to ourselves from one degree to another, right? The question is, are we speaking truth to ourselves? And the psalmist is. But other people think that it's antiphonal, that it's sort of like this call and response, that imagine as you're walking down the dusty trail from your homeland, ascending to Jerusalem, that one group calls out, he will not let your foot be moved, and the other calls out, he who keeps you will not slump. Sort of like at a camp where somebody yells out, we love Jesus, yes we do. And the other crowd yells out, we love Jesus, how about you, right? And then it stops when somebody gets hungry enough to eat, right? <laughs> yeah, they don't exactly know why the shift in tense happens, but we're invited to sort of view this as a conversation that's designed to remind us that looking to God is great, it's wonderful, but we must first remind ourselves that God is looking at us, that God is looking at us. And as someone who can fall asleep at the drop of a hat, you turn on a movie and I will fall asleep, I promise you. I love the fact that God never slumbers, he never sleeps. He's always got his eye on you. Yeah, he has creative power and constant, constant awareness. One of my favorite names for God in the scriptures is El Roy. Will you say this with me? El Roy. It means the God who sees. We first see this name given to God in Genesis chapter 16, verse 13. And it's, it's Hagar who names God or who recognizes that this is what God is like. Listen to the way that the scriptures read. It says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And if you know anything about this story, you know that Hagar is at the lowest point. She's been cast out. She's wondering where her next meal is going to come from. She's destitute. And she has this encounter with a living God where she recognizes, oh my goodness, in the midst of all that I'm walking through and the, the need for provision, God, you're the God who sees. In all of my pain and all of my sorrow, God, you see me. And I think some of you are asking that question today. God, do you see me? God, do you, do you see the pain that I'm walking through? God, do you see the heartbreak that I'm trying to navigate? God, do you, do you feel this anxiety that I'm carrying that feels like it's crushing me? God, do you see what's been done to me and how I've been treated wrong? God, God do you see? Friends, he's still El Roy. He's still the God that sees every heartbreak, every tear, every pain, every joy. There isn't a part of it that he has missed. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. 
And Jesus taught this same thing to his followers. There was this one time where Jesus wanted to teach his disciples what God is ultimately like. And he said to them this. He said, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? I know it's a rhetorical question. And Jesus, we're not sure about the going rate for sparrows. So we're just going to take your your word for it. Yes, they are. And not one of them is forgotten before God. See, here's Jesus' point. These seemingly insignificant animals who are sold for almost nothing, God sees them. God knows their story. And then then Jesus goes on to say, why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. Fear not. (laughs) Even the hairs on your head are numbered. Jesus knows exactly what's going on in your life down to the most minute detail. In fact, in fact, he knows what's going on in your life better than you do. How many of you know how many hairs are on your head? How many of you would need a daily update? Because it keeps going down. Can I get an amen, right? Yeah. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm I'm in that close of intimate connection to you. I know things about you that you don't know. Jesus is saying, I see. And when you call out to God, it is not to get his attention. It is to remind yourself that you have it. He never slumbers nor sleeps. He is still right now, today, Elroy. And I think some of us might be tempted to think, okay, so when I perform well, and when I stick the dismount, and when I get the gold medal, and when I do everything right, then God sees me, and then God is with me, and then God has, allows me to experience his presence and know his love, and that's when I receive from God when I perform. The fact is, though, there's no footnote that says that God is Elroy when you perform well. When you stick the dismount, when you get everything right. No, he's the God who sees you on your best day and on your worst day. On the mountaintop and in the valley. When you love well and when you fail miserably. He is still the God who sees And he's the God who loves. And I love the way that the Puritan author John Owen put it when he said, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is to not believe that he loves you. It's to not believe that he loves you. Just as you are. Right now. Today. Today. And here's the great thing. Bette Medler was wrong. When she sang that God is watching us from a distance. No, the, the poem continues and it says that there's a third reason you and I can cry out to God. And here's the reason. The Lord is your keeper. He is the Lord. The shade on your right hand. And he points out on the right hand, because typically if they were in battle, they would have a shield on their left hand. Their right hand was exposed. 
So the, the Lord is with you right at your right hand, that place of deed. The sun shall not strike you by day, which as a traveler in the Middle East, the sun was something that you wanted to avoid. The heat of the day could easily wipe you out. Nor the moon by night. See, the moon by night is significant because that's when the thieves and bandits and robbers, robbers would often strike. And so the psalmist's point is that God is a constant protection against the dangers that avail us. There's this word, you probably noticed it, keeper. All throughout this psalm. It's listed six times. In the Hebrew, it's the word shamar. And it literally means to watch or to preserve. What's the psalmist saying? The psalmist is saying that God is not only a creative power that we can call to for help. He's a constant, constant awareness. He never slumbers nor sleeps. And he's a consistent protection. One of the challenging things I've noticed as I was trying to dive into this psalm and, and feel it a little bit as I studied it this week is I have an ability to recognize the times when God didn't protect the way that I wanted him to better than the times I can identify when God did protect. I mean, think about this with me. It's hard to see the hand of God on our behalf at times, isn't it? We can identify the time we got into the car accident but we have a harder time naming the hundred times that we barely missed. That maybe, just maybe, God had a hand in. We can name the tough relationship that we feel like almost consumed us. But we have no idea how many difficulties God prevented. We can name the diagnosis we did receive. But we have no clue how many times God healed and preserved before we even knew it. And have you ever thought about that? I love this picture of God as a, as a mother hen who, who spreads out his wings and just calls his chicks to climb under for protection. That's what the psalmist paints this picture of. Let all who take refuge in you be glad. Take refuge. Be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Oh, so good. His creative power, his constant awareness, and his consistent protection. And yet, I think we'd all echo our amen to this and also want to raise our hand and say, gosh, God, I've got some questions. Are you with me? I've got some questions. That, that's, that is so comforting. And yet, and yet, at times it doesn't feel like that's the way the world actually works. And can we be that honest this morning? That lurking in the shadows, there's these questions. God, it doesn't seem like you come through every time in the way that we want. God, sometimes, I know you're watching, but sometimes it feels like you're absent and you're silent. God, sometimes it doesn't feel like you protect us. And then there's, there's all these questions that I feel like are just launched into the light when we read the end of the psalm that says, the Lord will keep you from, say it with me, church, all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you. You're going out and you're coming in from this time forth and forevermore. 
So I, let me just be honest with you. I was in with our writing team about 10 days ago and I came in and I was wrestling with this psalm and I sort of put my Bible down on the table and I went, all right, you guys, I know we're not supposed to say this, but is the psalmist right? Is this really the way God works? Is this really what God does? I mean, I, I think of Perpetua, who was an early convert to Christianity, a young mother who came to faith in Christ in North Africa in the early third century, came from a wealthy family, was thrown in jail because of her faith in Jesus. Her dad begged her to recant her faith. And she said, how can I turn from the God who loves me so much? They brought her baby to her to nurse in jail, but eventually they put her into arena and she was torn apart by wild leopards. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. I immediately thought in a writing team of, of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I said to the people sitting around our table, did God protect Bonhoeffer? I mean, here's a man who, who stands up for his faith to the face of evil, to the face of Hitler himself, and he's thrown in jail, and eventually he's hanged only days before the Americans liberated the POW camp that he was in. Did God save him from all evil? Was he kept from all evil? So, so here I was. I'm lamenting this during our meeting, going, I don't know what to do with this. But my conviction is that scriptures have to align with reality. God is not inviting us to live in a fantasy world, but in the world as it actually is. Does God actually do what he promises he will do? Okay. And then um, God hit me upside the head with a two by four of humility. And there's three things that I recognized. Here's the first. I don't get to decide for somebody else if God keeps them. They do. They do. In fact, there's moments that I've walked through in life through the valley of the shadow of death. And from the outside looking in, you would go, there's no way God kept him. And I would say, don't tell my story. God preserved me. God kept me. God had a hold of me. And I would argue that Bonhoeffer would claim the exact same thing. The SS doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's death described it like this. He said, he was a devout man, brave and composed. He said, I have hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Shortly before his death, he sent a letter back to England to George Bell, and it said this. It said, this is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. See, I think what Bonhoeffer would say is, oh, no, 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 no. It's not, that God, God, it's not that God lifted his hand from me. It's not that he didn't keep me. God kept me to the very end until I was ushered into his presence face to face. Here's the second thing that um, the Lord just sort of did business with me on that day when I sat around that table with those other writers. It was what we might call chronological snobbery. Meaning that we see things now in the scriptures that there's no way they could have seen. 
Right? Like the author had no way of Psalm 121 had no way of knowing that there are people that experience extreme evil. Right? Like he'd seen people taken away. He'd seen people die. Undoubtedly, he'd seen the hardships in life, probably to the nth degree from what we've experienced. Yeah, I think it's unfair. It was unfair of me. I will say it like this. To assume that we have questions that this person who wrote it didn't have because there's some unenlightened, bronzed age Neanderthal who is clueless as to the seemingly contradictory message that he was given to the way that the world actually works. No, he was well aware. And finally, I think it was Alistair Begg who said it so well when he said, we have to take what the Bible says in the context of what the Bible reveals. So there's all sorts of stories in the scriptures. If we read this passage of scripture and we take it to mean God's never going to let anything difficult happen in your life, we know based on scripture itself that that isn't the way the world works, right? I mean, think of Joseph in jail, Psalm 121, right? He finds himself in the pit. He will not let your foot be moved. He finds himself stripped naked and sold as a slave. He will keep you from all evil. He's forgotten for years and years and years in jail. He doesn't slumber or sleep. Yet at the end of his life, Joseph claims all those things that they meant for evil, God meant for what? For good. He would say, God kept me for you. To all of his brothers. Yet in the economy of God, even evil and dis- have any doubts about this, just look to the cross. Yes, Psalm 121 seems to be saying that nothing bad will happen to you. But it can't mean that. Because bad things do happen. And they happen to people all throughout the Bible as well. And we've lived long enough to know that the rigors of life touch every single person. But listen to the way that the Apostle Paul wrote about God's keeping and his protection. Here's what he said. We are afflicted in every way. Ah, but we are not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted. Oh, but we're not forsaken. Struck down. Yeah but not destroyed. Always carrying around in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Yeah, Paul goes, okay, yeah, we are afflicted in not just some ways, but in every way, but we are not crushed. I love the way that Eugene Peterson wrote about this psalm. He said this, the promise of this psalm and both Hebrews and Christians have always read it this way, is not that we shall never stub our toes, but that no injury, no illness, no accident, no distress will have power over us. That is, will be able to separate us from God's purposes in us. I'm reminded that no amount of water outside of a boat or no amount of evil outside of a life can sink it unless it gets inside. Right? No amount of water in the ocean can sink a boat unless that water gets in 
side. And what God is promising to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, is I will not let evil consume you. I will not let it get inside of you. I will not let it crush you. I will not let it drive you to despair. I will not forsake you in the midst of it, and you will not be destroyed. Yet being kept from all evil doesn't mean that we won't be attacked by evil. It means we won't be defeated by evil. That's what it means. He will keep you. And so we can call out to him, friends, on the best day and on our darkest day. And let me really quickly, as we close, give you four things that I want to invite you to to pack for your road trip playlist. Four things. I'm going to fly through these. Number one, would you be willing to admit your need? Admit your need. It is not spiritual maturity to pretend that you are strong when you're not. It's pride. And it's not weakness to call for help. It's wisdom. I'm reminded that as the Titanic sunk and over 1,500 people lost their lives, there were also 472 open seats on lifeboats. Just waiting for somebody to say, help, help. I wonder if God is waiting to provide until you actually call out in need. Call out to him. Here's the second thing that I want to invite you to do. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes and raise your voice. Don't just lift them to the mountains. (laughs) Don't don't lift them to yourself. Don't lift them to those around you, but... Lift them to the God who made it all. As the Apostle Paul says, set your mind on things above, not on the things of earth. Third, can I call you this morning to renew your love, to renew your love for Jesus, to fall in love with him afresh? See, here's the truth, friends, that when Jesus is your supreme affection, you are untouchable, untouchable. I love the way that the Apostle Paul wrote it to the church in Philippi, where he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? Is gain. I mean, can you think of being a person who's trying to pin Paul down, and you say to him, hey, Paul, if you don't do what we're asking you to do, we're going to kill you. And he goes, oh, great. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And they go, okay, fine, then we're not going to kill you. Oh, fine, then I'm going to keep on serving Jesus, building up his church, and walking with him in intimacy. What do you do? What, he's one. And we can too. And we can too. Finally, would you reaffirm your trust? Would you reaffirm your trust in him? It's another word for faith, but it has a, a little bit more of an action attached to it. Reaffirm your trust. Friends, no trouble you encounter can create distance between you and God. No evil can overtake you. The reason that you can trust, the reason that we can trust that this passage is true is because of what Jesus has demonstrated and accomplished for us on the cross. The Father turned his face away from Jesus so that we can have confidence that his eye is always 
on us. He was abandoned so that we will never be deserted and will always be protected. He died so that even when we die, we shall what? Live. He will keep your life. And he's more powerful than any circumstance you're going to face. Help. I need somebody. Not just anybody. We need Jesus. And praise be to God, help has a name. And his name is Jesus. And all of God's promises are yes and amen in him. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I just get the sense that there are people in this room this morning who are asking that honest question, God, do you see me? Holy Spirit, right now, would you just make it clear to them that you do? Speak a word of love, of hope, of healing, of peace, please. God, we thank you for your character that's on display in this psalm. This song that they would sing as they walked to the city of peace, reminding themselves that, God, you are a creative power in our lives, that that your person, your spirit, that you can speak life out of death. You can speak things that are out of things that are not. You can do that in our life. Thank you for being a creative power. We call out to you, God, would you move and work? in our lives and through our lives, please. God, we thank you that you're a a consistent protection for us. God, that you come to our defense in ways we see and ways we'll never know. We thank you, we call out to you. And Lord, we thank you that today, right now, this very moment, you are still El Roy, the God who sees us. And in the midst of all of the storms of life, God, I pray that that the boat of our life wouldn't take on water, that our faith in you would be strong and that all the water outside of the boat wouldn't sink us, that you would keep us, hold us, love us. In a world where we need help, we look to you, creator of the heavens and the earth. And we are so grateful that you come to our rescue. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.